Welcome back to The Deeper Cut, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. It's great to be with you this week. Again, my name is Tim Pasek. I'm one of the ruling elders at Mercy Hill, and I'm joined, as always, by my fellow elder and our pastor, Phil Henry. Phil, how are you today? I'm well. Good morning, Tim. How are you? I'm, I'm doing wonderful. The sun is shining. The rain has finally subsided. Thank you, Noah, for your covenant there with God. So uh, I didn't think it was going to end, but it did. And uh, we have a beautiful spring morning to um, get together and talk about uh, your sermon from this week. Yeah, it's a glorious day. I did manage to get a little bit of yard work in before we got started this morning. So um, it, to the to the point of healthy marriage relationship. I'm in good standing with my wife. <laughs> Very good. Oh, actually, it's a, it's a great example of uh, you know, you're, you're putting into practice what you preached. I was submitting to my wife. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was leaning more into the, uh, the physical differences between uh, men and women. Well, there you go. But well, Now we're starting to tip our hand all the way, but yeah, it, 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 it did go this way. Honey, could you please, pretty please... Uh, cut some of the grass today? And I said, sure, honey. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you men out there <laughs> to to uh, listen well to our pastor Yeah. in this regard. Lesson to me as well. Well, we have a lot to, uh, to discuss today. This is kind of, um, I guess, the second in a two-week little... Uh, subsection in first peter three about the household actually three three weeks true um about the the christian household but um before before we jump in i i'm gonna go off script here because i want to make sure i quell um what might become a, a minor controversy in that i did not actively avoid hearing the sermon yesterday oh boy um I did listen to it on the recording. Thank you, Brother Scott, for getting that recording posted. Um, you you had I did I not called, I you didn't you. I didn't I didn't feel like you called me out, but I was surprised to have hit play heard, this morning and, and heard hear name. my name. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yes, I, I uh, providentially was on the schedule to teach the six to eight year old class yesterday and. Uh, Providentially, Allie was on the calendar for nursery last week, and so we, we did not go out of our way to avoid... Well, I, I, I was thinking of it the other way, Tim, just the wisdom that you showed in the management of your household, that you made sure that she heard the sermon directed to you, and you heard the sermon directed to her, and that just in, in the beautiful spirit of kind of patriarchal mutuality, if that's such a thing, <laughs> you... you you retold the sermon to one another in loving tones. Mm. That's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll ha- we'll let that picture uh, stay out there for, every, okay. for everybody. <laughs> if only I had that much wisdom, uh-huh. and if only I had that much uh, authority to set those schedules. We're just following our fearless <clears throat> children's ministry leader in that regard. But <clears throat> thank you for the shout out, and again. No, there's no controversy here. I was not, uh, you know, expulcating myself, if that's the right word. I'm, I listened to the sermon this morning and was greatly blessed um, by it and was certainly blessed by my time with the kids yesterday, too. But 
<clears throat> anyway, and you just wanted to get that aside. The kids touched on Joshua, which is another. Yeah, the the curriculum this week was um, actually the end of Joshua, where uh, Joshua um, rereads the law essentially to the Israelites and says, "If you obey God's law, you will be blessed, and if you disobey God's law, all these people that God has been fighting." on your behalf against, will come and conquer you, essentially. And so the lesson plan for the kids was, uh, or what I turned it into more, more, uh, more or less, was what is obedience? Why is that a difficult thing? And what do we learn in, in the Bible about obeying God? And what are, where do we see that in the gospel in, G- in Jesus? So Beautiful. Um, yeah, so to hear you reference Joshua was a, a nice little... Uh, you know, note in my ear as I was mm-hmm. talking of the same thing at the same time, just to a different audience in a different context. So, yeah, the the Joshua at the end of jo- you know, <clears throat> the land is divided in Joshua. So mm-hmm. uh, that that involves what I call fast Bible reading. <laughs> like when you're reading through the Bible in a year, not I mean every word is the word of God. Don't get me wrong, but. Yeah. I'm not actually getting inspired by the third division of the land, you know, mm-hmm. so in uh, Joshua 17 or something. Mm-hmm. But when he gets to the end, my little uh, colloquial uh, version is, you guys aren't interested in this, really. I mean, let's be honest. I'm right, aren't I? Like, no, 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 we're, we're interested. No, I, I really don't think you're interested <laughs> in this whole kind of God thing. No, 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 really. We really are honest, Josh. We really are interested. Are you sure? Because if you're interested, and then he goes on to explain. It's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what we're interested in. Okay, I don't believe you, but let's just pretend you are. Yeah. But here's one thing I know for sure. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Yeah. It could be a little much. To read through. I'm actually reading through that part of Joshua in my in my daily reading right now, and um, there's a few things that stick out. Caleb, you know, as an as an example, yeah. a godly man. Who, Caleb's who, amazing. He's and, great. Uh, and then those, it actually came to mind as we were kind of prepping this morning, Phil. There's those um, those daughters. I forget which tribe they were from, but their father had no sons, and so they had gone to Moses and said. To petition for our inheritance, right? And and Moses goes to the Lord, and the Lord's like, "Yeah, you should give them their father's inheritance." And they come back up in Joshua when the land is actually divided up, and they say, "Hey, don't forget about us." God right. said, "Right." And Joshua's like, "Oh yeah, we didn't forget. God said that absolutely." Right. So, um, which is a, a a small. I mean, we don't get we don't know a lot about those women, but a, I think a small glimpse or a picture of what you preached last yeah. week. Yeah, it is. So, just pr- another proof positive that the Bible is uh, interprets itself. It is its best... Um, uh, how do I put this? You can't just pick, pick and choose things and make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Right? right. It is consistent through and through. And in this passage... This week in First Peter three seven, and then in last week too, I feel like there's a lot of temptation, and certainly we've seen it. You have 
commentary sitting in front of you where I would argue that is not what that commentator did. He basically just went and took it out of context and said, this is what I wanted to say. You right. Know, this is my agenda. Yeah. So I don't know. We may get into that. And we may not, but. <clears throat> so in this, in this text, maybe we could, why don't you start by reading it? Yeah. Do, do something novel this week and we'll actually <laughs> read the passage. This is First Peter, chapter 3, in verse 7. Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. <clears throat> so... We talked about likewise a little bit last week, and starting at chapter 2, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 25, we have the case of slaves obeying masters with an extended appeal to the example of Christ who submitted to unjust punishment. The example is so rich however, in 221 to 25, that it far uh, outstrips any application just to slaves and becomes one of the greatest little sections in the entire New Testament on the redemption of Christ. It's like the whole gospel in four verses. And so 221 to 25 has kind of throws a glow over the whole book of Peter, but certainly over the other Mm-hmm. household instances. And so the word likewise in 3.1 and the word likewise in 3.7 suggests that just as slaves in the household were to integrate their relationship, a complicated relationship, based on sinful tendencies and practices and expectations and so forth, they're to integrate themselves into their cultural context in and through the power of Christ by the example of Christ. Likewise, wives are to do the same thing, mm-hmm. and husbands are to do the same thing. So the passage, the whole passage from 2.18 to 3.7 hangs together as, a, as Peter's version of the household code. And household code would be a little bit like, say, uh, an owner's manual, or say um, a tax law, or say some specific kind of writing, say a tweet even. So when I say those three things, you picture something in your mind, certain length, certain tone, certain context. So a household code is a specific kind of writing in the ancient world that Anybody that was a writer would kind of write his own household code. This is how houses, homes, households are to be arranged in society. The Greeks understood the city or even the world to be a house. And the arrangement of the city largely depended on the arrangement of the house, houses or households within the city. The health, the strength, the power the fame of a city would be in incredibly 
dependent upon the strength and the power and the fame of the households that make up the city. Mm. And so the Greek moralists and the Roman Latin moralists would write in detail about how the members of a household in a Roman or a Greek city should conduct themselves. And there's interesting overlap between some of the commands get written by pagan Greek and Roman authors and what we see in the Bible. And the overlap, to be real specific, uh, there's a great deal of consistency in, this, in, in the idea that Greek and Roman moralists valued submission of wives to husbands as part of their understanding of the order of reality. And so we see the New Testament authors using the same language. Wives, submit to your husbands. So the immediate question comes up, Tim. And that question is this. Are the, are the Greek and Roman philosophers of antiquity pagan, unbelieving, degenerate, hell-bound, unenlightened, devoid of the spirit? You get the idea. Mm -hmm. Are those people's ethic for marriage, is, is the ethic espoused in pagan household codes, and specifically the, the ethic of women submitting, wives submitting to husbands, Are they, have they captured a timeless truth in spite of their unbelief, almost as if by accident, through something we would call common grace? <laughs> yeah, by accident. Or <clears throat> have the New Testament writers, in a savvy missional move, co-opted this dehumanizing practice and dusted it off and polished that turd as good as they could and just made it something as appealing as they could, minimizing its negatives, maximizing its positives, but nonetheless accommodating themselves for the time being to a pagan ethic as a strategy to not offend their neighbors, to let them know that we too are good Roman or Greek citizens. So to put that in a nutshell, <clears throat> Are the pagans borrowing from God, or are the divine authors, Peter and Paul specifically, borrowing from the pagans? And I think the answer is both. The fact that the, the New Testament has a household code to begin with shows that our authors are borrowing from a venerable tradition of people writing about how men and women boys and girls should relate together as family. Uh, it is, it's, it's akin to the fact that Paul is writing an epistle, which is a Greek word for letter. He follows the conventions, not, not lock, stock, and barrel, but when he says, grace to you, greetings to the members of the household, and he ends and he has a beginning and there's all these things in the middle. When you lay it out along next to a, a Greek or a Roman epistle, it, it bears unmistakable similarity. He's using the epistolary format of Greek tradition. Mm -hmm. Likewise, the household code is borrowed from the pagans. The New Testament writers did not make that up themselves. It's not just coming out of, you know, fresh. This is not made cookies made from scratch. 
if it is, then they got the recipe off the internet. Right. So they're making chocolate chip cookies. I mean, my wife did not invent chocolate chip cookies. I think she may have perfected them, but she did not invent them. They existed long before she did. So the household code is borrowed. But the virtues in the Christian household code are absolutely inspired by God. And though they may bear superficial similarities to some of the virtues or vices described in the pagan household code, they are not to be confused. Submission for a Greek pagan wife to her Greek pagan husband was fundamentally different to the point of being incomparably different to the submission that's called for in the New Testament. And the reason that is, is because of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. And there is nothing, nothing in Greek or Roman household codes that can compare to Jesus. And so what's so radical about the New Testament household codes, this includes uh, 1 Corinthians 11, it includes Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and here we have it in 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 2 and 3. What's remarkable is Christ. So that in preaching and teaching these household codes, our listeners should know, and maybe this helps you too, Tim, that there is a deep conversation going on beneath the surface that isn't appropriate for the pulpit, but which substantially illuminates why we have these. Um, I would say there's one more peril, and then I want to get whatever thoughts that I've maybe kicked up in the still quiet waters of your mind this morning. <laughs> um, um, the, the idea that the health of a household is the basis for the health of a larger community like the church or like a town, a borough, or a state, or a nation. That idea, I believe, is also uh, the, the pagans stumbled on that as, a, as an eternal truth and make efforts to articulate it, very imperfect efforts, but efforts to articulate it. And you see that notion expressed in the New Testament. I mentioned it in the sermon. Uh, an elder, 1 Timothy chapter 3, must be someone who manage his own household well. First Timothy 5, a woman, a widow, needs to be a, a person who manages her household well. And so uh, a larger responsibility is given to individuals in the New Testament when they demonstrate faithful stewardship of small responsibility by comparative comparison. Managing a church or a city is large. I mean, it's not easy to manage a family, but it's the and this is a Greek word, and it's intentional, microcosm. The household is a microcosm of the cosmos, mm -hmm. and cosmos is the ordered reality of God. And the Greeks go on and on about this in all of their pagan philosophizing and moralizing, and they have a point. And so um, this, this household code here, uh, the slave passage, the wife passage last week, and then this week's passage on husbands, has some very interesting connections, similarities, and dissimilarities with uh, pagan writers. Thoughts on this? Anything new here or fresh? Or what are you thinking, Tim? 
Um, <clears throat> I I always think that it is helpful and necessary to um, read the scriptures in context, right? Um, so in talking about what culture, who was Peter writing to, what culture was that a part of, you know, those types of things, um, that can't be separated from the text itself. That does not mean that that text doesn't apply to our culture and our day, but I do think that we're good Bible students and Bible readers when we're doing that and not just taking things out of context because then we can quickly fall into the trap of making the Bible say things that it isn't saying or ignoring things that the Bible is saying. Right. Right. Um, that being said, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised at all, and I haven't read a ton of Greek um, literature or writing from the first century or before, other than some philosophy stuff, because I was a philosophy major. But besides that, I, I don't have a ton of um, academic background here. But I, I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans or, you know, the Babylonians and the Assyrian, you know, just name name a culture throughout history that didn't um, take advantage of, in a way, God's common grace, as you pointed it out, and acknowledge creation order, because that is, it is inevitable and unavoidable it just is you, you say you, you say creation order so um elaborate that phrase a little bit sure so you could go you know right back to genesis and you can see um the creation of the household you can see the creation of the order of that household this is before the fall this is built into the very fabric of how God created <clears throat> the cosmos, right? To use the word he used. So certainly things have um, been impacted by sin. You know, sin has crept in and has defiled that order and has created angst and turmoil and um, uh, uh, evil, you know, and... and um, and maliciousness and perverted what God had made to be good. But it, it doesn't take that order. It doesn't negate that order. It does not negate what God created. And so, although you can go, going back to the Greeks, they, they might have highlighted and agreed with and, and kind of stolen or borrowed what God had created for their own for their own purposes like it's still what god created it didn't change you know and and so um so, and, and you and you mentioned this in in your sermon yesterday I mean, it was your first point is that this is a cre creational responsibility i think is was right. the point right right like this is there from the very foundation not something that some really smart group of people came up with you might oh Oh, maybe the world does work that way. No, well, yeah, it does because that's how God made it to right. be. 
So that's, that's great interaction, Tim. So when we look at uh, the Greek ideal woman submits to her husband for a dozen reasons, 11 of which are wrong. Mm -hmm. One of them, though, is the Greeks may hold to a view, and I'm not quoting anybody here, but I'm just kind of making this up uh, following your, your comments, good comments. One of them may be that in creating man and woman, God created woman to be a helper to the man. Now, that's true. Uh, she does not, she's not inherently less intelligent, inherently less emotionally stable, inherently less rational, inherently really anything else. She is, as I mentioned in the sermon, inherently less physically strong. So there may be an, uh, a Greek philosopher isn't stupid. He's not going to ignore the nose in his face any more than he would ignore kind of the data that he's getting in a, just a, even a simplistic or cursory analysis of the sexes. So that may be another element that a Greek philosopher might get right. Mm -hmm. Fast forward 2,500 years to our society. We get a great deal right about the sexes as well when we take kind of a core sample of prevailing cultural ideologies and values and, and beliefs as Western, uh, modern, middle class, upper middle class, American, majority culture. We're sort of defining mm. ourselves here to some extent. There's a number of things that we've gotten lucky on as a society. One of them is that men and women are fundamentally equal in value. Um, but just as the Greeks, of the 12 things that they stated to be true about the virtue, say, of a, of a Greek, ideal Greek woman, the ideal American woman, of the 12 things that culture says are true about the ideal American woman, 11 of them are wrong. Uh, only not only one or two of them are right. One of them that's right is that your wife and my wife are precious in the sight of God and of equal value in every respect. So what I'm doing in, in making these comments is, is reminding you and our listeners that Culture arranges truths, divinely revealed truths, mutates and debases some of them, uh, elevates others, and those sorts of uh, arrangement of divinely revealed truth changes through time. Hmm. But Scripture alone is our inerrant and infallible interpreter of truth. But to your point, we have to read Scripture in light of the culture in which it was revealed as well. And so that involves a, a substantial amount of study and analysis in order to get it right. And so um, though the Greco-Roman culture that Peter is writing to gets a different set of truths, right and wrong, about what is an ideal woman and what is an ideal man that maybe we're getting, that actually creates some, some tension in our reading of the text because we're tempted to dismiss 
true truths that Peter is articulating. Right. And not just truths that he may be responding to or reacting to that are no longer commonly held today. Right. So we no longer hold that a, a woman is an inherently less of less value than a man because she is inherently less intelligent, inherently less rational, inherently less stable, which are some, some things that the Greeks, some Greeks held, not mm -hmm. all Greeks held those things. Mm -hmm. There were some more enlightened guys even back then. And so we kind of know this when we're reading the passage and we're like, I can't really relate to this very well because it sounds like Peter is speaking to a group of people that actually believe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so reading the Bible isn't always as, as simple as some people might make it seem to be. Right. Um, certainly the message is there. The, the basic message can be accessed even by a child. But right. on some of these tougher topics, I think uh, a lot more work is required um, than the average Christian is prepared to give it. Yep. My guess is the average man in our church does not want to study this as, uh, by choice. Um, my guess is the average guy who's listening to the podcast is somewhat uncertain as to his views on sex and gender. Uh, my guess is the same thing would be true of women. And so I hope that the work that we've done in this podcast and that I did in the pulpit the last couple of weeks helps to move the ball forward in people's lives so that they are um, well-equipped is, is the is the clarion call for the preacher. We want to equip God's people for right. works of service. Yep. Ephesians, right? Ephesians 4, that's right. Stay tuned, I'm preaching that passage this summer, so <laughs> exhorting. Sorry, yes. exhorting that yes. passage. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's good. I, I would add, this is why you need to read the whole Bible, Right, all the scriptures don't just cherry pick, because um, you will you will run the risk of missing what the Bible's telling you if you're just, you know, oh man, Joshua's so boring, you know, it's just too too. Right. I I don't know who these people are. I can't pronounce the names. You know. Um, Genesis is so long. It takes me three weeks to read through Genesis. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> read it one chapter at a time. It's important. It's important because Peter has, I mean, I, I've not spoken with Peter, but I'm fairly confident in saying that Peter has the Old Testament in mind when he's writing this letter to the church. So maybe more than any other author, actually. Um, I think one contribution that I worked, I, I worked hard on and perhaps spent a little too much, too, too much time in the sermon on, but the first point, the creational responsibility. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 5 that he's talking about creation. He literally quotes Genesis and says, I'm quoting Genesis right now, you know, mm -hmm. like he hits you over the head with, with a stick. Mm -hmm. And Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 19 that he's quoting Genesis. Moses said, and then he quotes Genesis. Peter doesn't make it clear that he's dealing with creation. I argued 
that he is dealing with creation. What do you think of my argument? In a nutshell, I said he changes from talking about wives to women, as in females. Right. Number two, he uses the word vessel, which has a creational, um, I guess, milieu about it. Right. And then three, by mentioning weaker vessel, he's speaking to creational realities that Adam's primary sphere is work and Eve's primary sphere or calling is children slash family and helping Adam in his work. Yes. So yes, it, it was persuasive to you? Yeah. Not only was it uh, I'll, I'll I'll put my cards on the table. I didn't need a lot of persuading, because <laughs> again, I I do think that. Kind of going back to our conversation about common grace, Peter Peter knows and understands how God created the world and how God created the household, and so I think that's embedded, even if he didn't give the other breadcrumbs here. I do appreciate, and I agree with your your pointing out of those those breadcrumbs. That's how I how how I look at it. So, you hold to a redemptive, historic reading of the Bible, correct? Which means that the Bible, in its canonical form, is an organic whole that progressively, in an unfolding way with more and more illumination as we move from Genesis to Revelation, highlights and describes the truth of God. And no one part of it can be read in isolation from the rest. So even when Peter doesn't explicitly say, yo, dummy, I'm talking about Genesis. Genesis. Uh, We're not only warranted, but required to read Peter in light of Genesis, not atomistically. And by atomistically, I mean as if Peter is written kind of off in a corner and to your point that he's not, you know, he doesn't have currents of Old Testament scripture running through his mind that Jesus taught him, by the way. So, yeah, I think we need to read the one part of the Bible in light of other parts of the Bible. And advice to young preachers when you go out and buy your fancy expensive commentaries or check them out at the library and they go off on a tangent and it strikes you as a little bit odd, uh, you're probably right. They're probably wrong because the vast majority of commentators are engaged in a scholarly conversation, often, it's sad to say, which is detached not only from the life of the church, but from this organic, redemptive, historical understanding of Scripture. Mm. And so, uh, sadly, but this is why we want our preachers to be trained, we, we need pastors and elders who, who, as you do, Tim, and I'm grateful for you, who, who work to read the Bible as an organic whole. Hopefully, the, 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 the rank and file, the, the lay people who heard the sermon, even the young children, were nudged forward a little bit in that yeah. uh, without getting caught up too much in the weeds. Um, we've had the occasion over the past couple of years for you to teach a school of discipleship at Mercy Hill. And 
in that curriculum that you put together, the first class is about worldview. And you have to start there Mm -hmm. with everything, everything you talk about, because there are assumptions and there are um, beliefs that are built into the conversation that you're having at this very minute that if you don't acknowledge those, you're talking across one another, if you will. And you might be speaking the same language, you might be saying the same words, using the same vocabulary, but you are not talking the same thing if you don't understand where people are coming from. Um, My kind of uh, dumbed-down way of repeating what you just said much more eloquently is that I bring a worldview to my reading of the Bible. The authors of of the scriptures had a worldview that they're writing from, um, I'm striving my best to be in line in my worldview with what I believe the worldview was of the authors, which I believe is the worldview that the Bible teaches, which is true through and through um, with how God created reality. So to give an, a concrete example of that, First Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, that word husband came about because of Genesis. So I, even though that Peter's not, you wouldn't pull up a reference Bible and find First Peter 3, 7 referencing Genesis 3 for the first time that the word husband is used in the scriptures. I doubt that that would be a reference there. But I would argue that is a reference because without that happening in Genesis, the idea of a husband doesn't exist. God created that. So that's how far, you know what I mean? Like that's not an explicit reference, but I think that you can't separate those two. Right. They are joined at the hip. And that's why I would argue that the Greeks and the Romans and everyone else, they have no choice, but that's common grace. That's God saying, this is how, this is how I've created the world. It's plain, you know, Romans one, you can try to deny it, but you're denying a, a true reality that exists, and it, your denial of that doesn't make that any less true. It just means that you're trying to hide from it, essentially. So, yeah, um, very well put. One little footnote, maybe, or or qualification: Peter's worldview is not infallible any more than mine is, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. and I know you agree with that. Yeah. But we believe as he's writing scripture in the original autograph, his worldview was without ever invalidating his personality with all of his opinions, sinful and otherwise, the inscripturation of First Peter is divinely authored so that Peter's personality is preserved intact along with his imperfect worldview. But what he writes is the authoritative, infallible, and inspired, inerrant word of God. And that is a mystery as to how both of those things can be true at the same time. It does create some difficulty for the human reader of Scripture because we see Peter's, if I may put it this way, sinful personality poking through in places. And by that, I'm not saying there's sin in the Scripture, any, unless what we're talking about is, say, 
when Pilate turned Jesus over to be crucified, that was sin, and that's right. in Scripture. Right. Uh, when Paul stood by the stoning of Stephen, that was sin, and that's in Scripture. But that experience that Paul had remains with Paul as he goes on to write Scripture. That's right. um, Paul, perhaps more than anybody else, lets that prickly personality show through in places, <laughs> especially like in the latter part of 2 Corinthians and you know, he had issues with that particular church. But even there, um, and at times he says, it is I, Paul, speaking, not the Lord, which is a, an interesting phrase. Um, so Peter's writing as a pastor and a shepherd and a, an apostle to help the churches of the diaspora deal with the tensions of being a unique Christian member of a household that might not be altogether believing or might be altogether believing and um, um, looked on with suspicion by the surrounding, the, pe the rest of the people on the block. Um, one more little hermeneutical point. Peter, unlike Paul, doesn't go through the entire household. So he speaks to slaves, as Paul does, but not to masters which Paul does. Mm -hmm. He speaks to wives, Paul does, and husbands, Paul does. But husbands get one verse, and wives get six. As an aside, if you count up the number of verses in Ephesians 5, the wives get three, and the husbands get nine. So it all balances out, okay, guys? <laughs> um, Paul speaks to parents and children. Peter speaks to neither. So Paul's household code is a little more thorough. Um, exhaustive, we can say. But that does that mean Peter had no opinion on any of those other things? I think he does. Uh, Peter seems to speak to Christian wives in a non-Christian marriage. But as I pointed out two weeks ago, there are implications there for Christian wives in a Christian marriage. And I think Peter hints at that. Mm -hmm. He seems to suggest that husbands are living with Christian wives. And he doesn't even hint at a husband living with a non-Christian wife. Probably it was a lot less frequent occurrence. Um, my point is, just because a category or case isn't explicitly stated, doesn't mean we can't gather up the data of Scripture and use good and godly and uh, healthy and helpful inference to e extrapolate to other cases that aren't mentioned. Yes, certainly we don't have every word and thought that Peter ever had, or Paul, or Jesus. You know what I mean? Like right. the Gospels, the Gospels are not an exhaustive biography of Jesus' life, with every single sermon he preached and every single word that he said to his disciples. So, um, so that's that's important. To remember, um, I think that actually leads, in my opinion, to the credence and the authenticity of what is written in the scriptures, because it's not like someone sat down there and went, "Well, let me write an exhaustive, you know, let me let me, um, forgive my forgive my phrase, but you know, fill every hole and void and stuff like that mm -hmm. with something." Um, but again, I, I do think that we see a, a consistent, coherent 
um, message, gospel message throughout all of the Bible, and there's not a contradiction there between Peter and Paul. Mm-hmm. Even though they, I'm sure, had their their moments of, I don't want to say contradicting one another, but, you know, of conflict, mm-hmm. I mean, we know that, but what they, what God has given us in his word is a coherent household code, to go yeah. back to the code, right? And we get Peter's flavor and his slice, and we get Paul's flavor, mm-hmm. but they're not at odds with one another. Any more than James and Paul are at odds. Right. But I do think Peter takes uh, a definite uh, missional, missionary approach, Yes. which is going to become increasingly important as we move to the to the second half of Peter when we're uh, in, in the coming weeks. Do you, do you think, just a quick aside there, do you, do you believe that's because Peter's writing to a dispersed church as opposed to a particular I do. church? I do. Like and I, I also have, think it has to do with Acts uh, 12 when Peter leaves and he never comes back. Uh, he engages in his own mission to the Gentiles, perhaps to these churches, and has to do with Peter's missionary heart. You know, unlike Paul, Peter heard Jesus give the Great Commission. He's the rock on which the church is built, and um, the gates of hell, which are a defensive fortification, are going to not withstand the church's advance, but they will give way. As we advance, Satan retreats. He's a defeated foe. Peter actually makes that clear at the end of the book. So, um, yeah, I, I think Peter has a, uh, uh, you don't want to drive a huge wedge between these two major pillars of the church, yeah. but um, Peter, if Paul has a theological focus, Peter does seem to have a missional focus. Mm. So Peter um, might be more of a, a missionary in that sense, and Paul more of a church planter. Ironically, yeah, but as a church planter, he's he's so brilliant, providing the, the kind of the, he's the first theologian of the church. Yeah, actually, I think James was probably the first theologian of the church in terms of time, but Paul was theologizing before James was. Um, one more thought, or um, because this. <laughs> We're just getting started, and we actually need to be wrapping yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Um, hindered prayers. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I shared a little post. I don't know if you can pull it up on your uh, internet accessible device, <laughs> but I shared a post with the church quoting Philippians 1, And I, I said a number of things in, in the post, because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, I'll share out to the church some thoughts about the sermon and, and so forth. It's mm-hmm. like, they can't just, uh, you know, I've, there's always so much more than what can be said on Sundays, hence our podcast. But could you read that little bit, that last little bit? It's kind of an encouragement. And then I quote uh, Philippians. Yeah, so your last... Um... Paragraph, thanks again for your support. I'm praying that God will make advances in your life as he pursues you, 
overcoming all our hindrances by his grace. I love this example of how something Paul and others initially thought was a hindrance or an interruption or a barrier to God's progress actually became a means to its advance. And this is from Philippians 1, 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial, imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Okay, so the word advance is the antonym, like it's literally the opposite for the word for hindrance. Mm -hmm. And in the sermon I described hindrance, the, the irony, and I said, brothers, you're throwing down logs and digging ditches and burning bridges that God wants to use to approach you and to apprehend you for his goodness, <laughs> by his grace, for his purposes and glory. Right. Why are you doing this? Are you crazy? He is good. He loves you. You know, this is what I'm saying in the message. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, there's even a deeper irony, Tim, which is that God is so good and so holy and so sovereign that he is able to sovereignly use these hindrances which we create and which create a distance between us. It, it's, it silences, you know, the response of God to us and in a sense, uh, he's choosing not to hear us mm -hmm. as a fatherly method of discipline. But while that's happening at the, at the local level, if you will, or at the personal level, at the, at the divine sovereign level, even those hindrances are serving to, a, to bring him closer to us so that what we thought was uh, an interruption of grace, and which was, in a sense, an interruption of grace, right. becomes the very means of grace. Hmm. Uh, it's a little bit like what John said, John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Or Joseph said, you intended it for evil but God intended it for good. Right. So our marriages grow, even through our sin. It's no excuse to sin. It can't be a justification of sin. We can't sin that grace may abound. We know that. But uh, the encouragement for our men, uh, for any men listening in terms of failures in our marriages, and my list is very long. Yours isn't quite as long as mine, but you'll get there, trust me. I'm working on it. <laughs> is that God will... God will turn even our failures into mm. a means of grace, uh, Lord willing, unto a Amen. thousand generations. Amen. Yeah, um, you, you quoted severe mercy of God. Yeah. Which I think is so great, because I, I take that in two ways. You know, it's, it's hard, severe, harsh. I don't mean harsh like punishment harsh, but like it feels hard mm -hmm. and severe. And severe in the sense of like extreme, like God loves you that much. You started that point, that third point, by saying that um, God is God warns you not as like punishing a heathen, but as a son. Mm -hmm. And that is that's that is the reality. There's the truth, right? It's mm -hmm. that even those struggles that we feel that you're talking about that God uses, He uses it because. He has purchased you with his blood, and you are a son of the sovereign Lord. Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard, but it's good hard, you know. 
I'm watching my one and a half year old son learn how to run and jump and do all different kinds of things. And there are certainly times when I know, yep, you're going to hurt yourself. And I let, I let him do it. And it feels severe in a moment because I'm like, should I really be letting him hurt himself? Like, I know you really shouldn't be playing with that. You're going to hit yourself in the head and you're going to start crying. And I think, no, I need to let that happen because he's got to learn. He's got, and he's not going to learn if I take it from him every time. So that's a, a really poor example, but I feel like in a way what Actually, God does... It, it is. It's a pretty good example because it also serves to highlight a difference between men and women. <laughs> 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 when, when your children get old enough to drive, it, it takes on a, a bit of a different character, but it's the hmm. same basic dynamic. Dad's like, she'll be fine. Mom's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We're not quite there yet, but... Uh, don't give your one and a half year old the keys, not yeah. even as a toy. That would be my parenting yeah, advice. That's that's good advice. They will wind up in the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hit this one hard. I don't know what we've accomplished in the past hour, but um I feel like I feel like we've gotten through a lot. We have. Um and I really appreciate particularly this week, Phil, not just because it was a sermon addressed to um to the men of the church primarily, but me particularly having listened to it kind of after the fact. And I confess to you this morning that it's hard for me to kind of not have a ton of time to digest that before we, yeah. we start talking it, about it. So this it, has been a true blessing to me to go through this with amen, you today. Amen. And um, in God's providence, it gave me a chance to, I, I did a little... I don't think I quite got to the rant level that, that I was at before we started recording this, but it gave me a little bit of a platform to kind of go off on some things that I'm passionate about. Mm. These are deep waters, so they say. I mean, there's a lot here. We said this last week, too. There's a, a ton to unpack. You mentioned earlier in, um, in this recording that... Um, there's a lot that's not said from the pulpit, but is said in conversations or needs to be said in conversations. So whatever church you're a part of, if you're listening to this, whether it's ours or another church, these are conversations worth having, you know, um, not just the one that Phil and I just had, but, you know, the ones that come out of things that we've said here or things that you heard in that, in that message. Um, God wants the very best for us covering it up or ignoring our challenges, our struggles is not, I mean, God's going to use it. Like we just said, he would use that even because he is that good and that great. But, um, if, if we're really striving to walk with him, um, in righteousness and in faith, then we should be having these conversations. So that reminds me, uh, very specifically, uh, honey, dear, a hypothetical husband talking to a hypothetical wife. Dearest love, beloved of my heart, wife of my youth, doe on the hillside, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, you can even go Song of Solomon if you want. Do you believe what Scripture says, that you are a weaker vessel and a joint heir of the grace of life, or do you struggle with that? in some way. And what does she say? 
it's a weird question. It's not the average question that the average guy is going to ask his, the average wife. Um, do you believe, um, sister in Christ, that I'm living with you in a way that shows knowledge and enlightenment and understanding in light of those two truths of who God has created you to be and who he has redeemed you to be? Hmm. Or do you think I'm a bit obtuse in some areas? If so, could you name one of them that you'd like me to work on? Um, so just ask. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to have like a fully formed theology of biblical sex and gender in order to ask two questions of your wife. Uh, do you agree with the scriptures? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, why? If the answer is no, why? If it's sort of yes, sort of no, you know, what, it, what is your wife's beliefs about this passage? And then two, how am I doing in relating to you in light of this passage? Hmm. To that end, I've been on a six-month uh, or so, it's about six months, journey of getting my black belt in wifely understanding. And it's a set of about 60 questions. It's about 10 questions per month. And I hope Polly isn't listening because it's supposed to be a secret. <laughs> and I just We can edit this part out. Sprinkle them in, Tim, to conversations here and there. And... Uh, my schedule says that I'm supposed to be on the end of April. I'm really more at the beginning of March. So I'm, like my Bible reading, I'm a little behind. But uh, I asked one of the questions uh, on a date that we took this week. We, we still date even after 30 years. And um, I said, how are you... What was communication like between your parents growing up? I asked her that. It's on my list. And what followed that question, because the time was right and we had the time, was about an hour-long share on her part. It blew me away. Hmm. I learned things that, that I had never known. And then she followed up, what about for you? Like, she asked me. And it kind of caught me off guard, because, you know, in my mind, I'm, I'm doing this to check off my list. Not really, but yeah, know, it helped. So, so then I shared for like 20 minutes and, uh, we had a real advance in our mutual understanding, but particularly me, I gained an understanding of my wife, hmm. both in her weaknesses because she's made different than me, but also in our partnership hmm. as two Christians uh, headed towards heaven. So that was a question that was at the end of February's schedule, as I've laid it out, beginning of March. Um, no big deal. It was, it was a beautiful moment. And that's coming from you know, a veteran of the Clone Wars that has lots of uh, stories from the, from the battlefront. So I just would encourage you, Tim, and, and any of the brothers that are listening, whether it's you know, getting a copy of these, uh, this, I call it, it's this black belt on uh, wifely understanding, whether you wor start working towards that or, or whatever tool you want to use, go on a marriage retreat, you know, take your wife out to dinner, do wh whatever's going to show understanding, advancing understanding, I think that's my final appeal. Mm -hmm. Do something. 
do something. I like it. It's kind of Nike-ish. Just do it. Yeah. But it's good. It is is good. And I do think it's that simple. Hmm. Well, we're going to wrap with that. Thanks for taking the time today, Phil. Thanks for your efforts in preaching, as always. Um, I've personally been extremely blessed by this whole series, but in the past couple weeks, um, and my marriage has been blessed by it. Certainly have some uh, things to consider and pray about and try to implement in my household, Um, but that's, that's what it's all about. So thanks for your support in that, brother, for your prayers. We're praying for all of you out there who are listening. We pray that God would be using this conversation and even more so the His Word that's being preached on Sundays, whether it's from our pulpit or from your own church's pulpit, to advance the gospel in your heart and in your home and in your lives. So keep at it. Keep it up. Um, if you need support of ours, you can reach out to us. You know, we'd be happy to talk to you about these things or pray with you um, or unpack questions that you have. And, um, yeah, we, we hope that God would use this, too. As, as I open every week, it's a ministry of our church. We truly look at it that way, and we pray that this would minister to you wherever you are today as you're listening to this. Um, we hope that you have a good rest of your day and your week. We, we hope to be back with you again next week. I'm not sure what's on our agenda, but there will be something um, on the agenda for sure. And uh, thanks again for listening and joining us on the Mercy Hill podcast, The Deeper Cut. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.